Chapter 3 Arizona's Yesterday by John Cady Bassaloo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tony Passante. Rough and Tumble on Land and Sea. Twas youth, my friend, and joyfulness besides that made me breast the treachery of Neptune's fickle tides. When spring came around in the year 1867, we removed to Tubac, where we were joined by a K Company of my regiment and C Company of the 32nd Infantry. Tubac, considered by some to be the oldest town in Arizona, before the consummation of the Gadsden Treaty, was a military post at which the Republic of Mexico regularly kept a small garrison. It was situated on the Santa Cruz River, which at this point generally had considerable water in it. This was probably the reason for the establishment of the town, for water has always been the controlling factor on the settlement's progress in Arizona. The river is dry at back now, however, except in unusually rainy seasons, irrigation and cattle having robbed the stream of its former volume. At the time we were quartered there, Tubac was a place of no small importance, and after Tucson and Prescott were discounted, it was probably the largest settlement in the territory. Patagonia has now taken the position formerly occupied by the old adobe town as center of the rich mining zone of southern Arizona, and the glories of Tubac, if they can be given that name, are, like the glories of Tombstone, gone. Unlike those of Tombstone, however, they are probably gone forever. Tombstone may yet rise from the ashes of her splendid past to a future as one of the important towns of the southwest, if the stories of untold riches nearby her are to be believed. A little to the east, two back, and separating that town from Patagonia is Mount Wrightson, one of the highest mountains in Arizona. Nicknamed Old Baldy after its famous namesake in California, this mammoth pile of rock and copper was in the old days a landmark for travelers, visible sometimes for days ahead on the wagon trails. It presaged near arrival in Tucson, for in a direct line Old Baldy is probably not further than 40 miles from the old Pueblo. We camped at Tubac during the summer and part of the winter of 1867, and I remember while we were there, I cooked a reception banquet for Colonel Richard C. McCormick, who was then, and until 1869, governor of the territory of Arizona. I forget his business in Tubac, but it was either an electioneering trip or one of inspection after his appointment to the office of governor in 1866. In the early part of 1868, we moved to Fort Buchanan, which before the war had been a military post of considerable importance. It received its name from the president before Lincoln and was garrisoned by Confederates during the Civil War. We rebuilt the fort and renamed it Fort Crittenden in honor of General Thomas L. Crittenden, a son of the Honorable John J. Crittenden of Kentucky, who was then in command of the military district embracing that portion of the territory south of the Gila River. Crittenden was beautifully situated on the Snoida, about ten miles from where I now live and in the midst of some of the most marvelously beautiful scenery to be found on the American continent. Fort Crittenden is no longer occupied and has not been for some time, but a short distance toward Benson is Fort Hachuca, where at present the garrison of the Ninth Cavalry is quartered. During part of 1868, I carried mail from where Calabasas is now, it was then Fort Mason, to Fort Crittenden are proceeding emphatically not as simple as it may sound. My way lay over a mountainous part of what is now Santa Cruz County, a district which at that time, on account of the excellent fodder and water, abounded with hostile Indians. 
On one occasion that I well remember, I had reached the water hole over which is now the first railroad bridge north of Patagonia, about a half mile from the present town, and had stopped there to water my horse. While the animal was drinking, I struck a match to light my pipe, and instantly I ducked. The bullet whistled over my head near enough to give me a strong premonition that a couple inches closer would have meant my end. I seized the bridle of my horse, leapt down his back, bent low over the saddle, and rode for it. I escaped, but it is positive in my mind today that if those Apaches had been better accustomed to the use of the white man's weapons, I would not now be alive to tell the story. I was a great gambler even in those days. It was the fashion then to gamble. Everybody except priests and parsons gambled, and there was a scarcity of priests and parsons in the sixties. Men would gamble their dust, and when that was gone, they would gamble their worldly possessions, and when those had vanished, they would gamble their clothes, and if they lost their clothes, there were instances where some men even went so far as to gamble their wives. And every one of us each day gambled his life. So you see, the whole life in the territory in the early days was one continuous gamble. Nobody save gamblers came out there, because nobody but gamblers would take the chance. As I have stated, I followed a natural trend. I had a name, even in those days, of being one of the most spirited gamblers in the regiment, and that meant the countryside, and I confess it today without shame, although it is some time now since I raised an ante. I remember one occasion when my talents for games of chance turned out rather peculiarly. We had gone to Calabasas to get a load of wheat from a store owned by a man named Richardson, who had been a colonel in the volunteer service. Richardson had, as manager of the store, a fellow named Long, who was well known for his passion for gambling. After we had given our order, we sought about for some diversion to make the time pass, and Long caught the sight of the goatskin chaperones I was wearing. He stared at them enviously for a minute, and then proposed to buy them. They're not for sale, said I, but if you like, I'll play you for them. Done, said Long, and put up sixteen dollars against the chaps. No, Long was a game sport, but that didn't make him lucky. I won his $16, and then he bet me some whiskey against the lot, and again I won. By the time I had beat him five or six times, had won a good half of the store's contents, and was proposing to play him for his share in the store itself, he cried quits. We loaded our plunder on the wagon. Near Bloxton, or where Bloxton now is, four miles west of Patagonia, we managed to upset the wagon and half the whiskey and wheat never was retrieved. We had to wear with all the fixed things with the officers, however, and went unreproved, even making a tidy profit selling what stuff we had left to the soldiers. At that time, the company maintained gardens on a part of what afterwards was the Sanford Rancho, and at one time during 1868, I was gardening there with three others. The gardens were on a ranch owned by William Morgan, a discharged sergeant of our company. Morgan had one Mexican working for him, and there were four of us from the fort stationary to cultivate the gardens and keep him company, more for the latter reason than the first, I believe. We took turn and turn about of one month at the fort and one month at the gardens, which were about fourteen miles from the fort. One of us was Private White of Company K. He was a mighty fine young fellow, and we all liked him. Early one morning, the five of us were eating breakfast in the cabin, an illustration of which is given, and White went outside for something. Soon afterward, we heard several reports, but figuring that White had shot at some animal or other, we did not even get up from our meal. Finally came another shot, and then another, and Morgan got up and peered from the door. He gave a cry. Apaches, he shouted. They're all around. Poor White. 
nip and tuck then for hours we kept up a steady fire at the indians who circled the house with blood-curdling whoops we killed a number of them before they finally took themselves off we went forth to look for white we found our comrade lying on his back a short distance away his eyes staring unseeingly to the sky he was dead we carried him to the house and discussed the situation they'll come back said morgan with conviction then it's up to one of us to ride to the fort i said but morgan shook his head there isn't a horse anywhere near he said we had an old army mule working down the gardens and i bethought myself of him there's the mule i suggested my companions were silent that mule was the slowest creature in arizona i firmly believed it was as much as he could do to walk let alone gallop somebody's got to go or we'll all be killed i said let's draw lots they agreed and we found five straws one of them shorter than the rest these we drew and the short one fell to me i look back on that desperate ride now with feelings akin to horror surrounded with murderous savages with only a decrepit mule to ride and fourteen miles to go it seemed impossible that i could get through safely my companion said good-bye to me as though i were a scaffold victim about to be executed get through i did how i do not know and the chillingly weird war calls of the indians howling at me from the hills as i rode returned to my ears even now with extraordinary vividness and as morgan had prophesied the apaches did come back it was a month later and i had been transferred back to the fort when a nephew of colonel dunkelberger and william j osborne of tucson were riding near morgan's ranch apaches ambushed them slew the colonel's nephew whose name has slipped my memory and wounded osborne the latter who was a person of considerable importance in the territory escaped to morgan's ranch an expedition of retaliation was immediately organized at the fort and the soldiers pursued the assassins into mexico finally coming up with them and killing a number i did not accompany the troops on this occasion having been detailed at the santa rita range to bring in lumber to be used in building houses I returned from the Santa Rita's in July and found an order had been received from the fort from the War Department that all men whose times had expired or were shortly to expire should be congregated in Tucson and from there marched to California for their discharge. A few weeks later I went to the old Pueblo and, together with several hundred others from all parts of the territory, was mustered out and started on a return march to Wilmington where we arrived about October 1st. On the 12th of October I was discharged. After working as a cook for a short time for a company that was constructing a railroad from Wilmington to Los Angeles, I moved to the latter place and obtained employment in the old Bella Union Hotel as chef. John King was the proprietor of the Bella Union. Till Christmas Eve I stayed there and then Sergeant John Curtis of my company, who had been working as a saddler for Banning, a capitalist in Wilmington, came back to the kitchen and said, John, old sport, let's go to Frisco i haven't i told him enough change to set him up across the street let alone go to frisco for answer curtis pulled out a wallet drew therefrom a roll of bills that amounted to about a thousand dollars divided the pile into two halves laid them on the table and indicated them with his forefinger john he offered if you'll come with me you can put one of those piles in your pocket what do you say Inasmuch as I had previously little opportunity to really explore San Francisco, the idea appealed to me and we shook hands on the bargain. Christmas morning, fine, cloudless, and warm, found us seated on the San Jose stage. 
San Jose then was nearly as large a place as Tucson is now, about 20-odd thousand if I remember rightly. Stage route carried us through the mission country, now so widely exploited by the railroads. Santa Barbara, San Luis Obispo, Monterey were all towns on the way, Monterey being probably the largest. The country was very thinly occupied, chiefly by Spanish haciendas that had been in the country long before gold was discovered. The few and powerful owners of these estates controlled practically the entire beautiful state of California prior to 49, and at the time I write I still retained a goodly portion of it. They grew rich and powerful, for their lands were either taken by right of conquest or by grants from the original Mexican government, and they paid no wages to their peons. These Spaniards, with the priests, however, are to be credited with whatever progress civilization made in the early days of California. They built the first passable roads, they completed rough surveys, and they first discovered the wonderful fertility of the California soils. The towns they built were built solidly, with an eye to the future ravages of earthquakes and of time, which is something the modern builder often does not do. There are many of the Pueblos old houses built by the Spaniards in the middle part of the 18th century, which are still used and occupied. We arrived in San Francisco a few days after our departure from Los Angeles, and before long the city had done to us, which she still does to so many, had broken us on her fickle wheel of fortune. It wasn't many days before we found ourselves our good time, a thing of the past, up against it. John, said Curtis finally, we're broke. We can't get no work. What do we do? I thought a minute and then suggested the only alternative I could think of. Let's get a blanket, I offered. Getting a blanket was the phrase commonly in use when men meant to say they intended to enlist. Curtis met the idea with instant approval, if not with acclamation, and suiting the action to the words, we obtained a hack and drove to the Presidio, where we underwent the examination for artillerymen. Curtis passed easily and was accepted, but I, owing to a wound in my ankle received during the war, was refused. Curtis obtained the customary three days' leave before joining his company, and for that brief space we roamed about the city, finishing our good time with such money as Curtis had been able to raise by pawning and selling his belongings. After the three days were over, we parted, Curtis to join his regiment, and since then I have neither seen nor heard of him. If he still chances to be living, my best wishes go out to him in his old age. For some time I hung around San Francisco, trying to obtain employment without any luck. I was not then as skillful a gambler as I became in after years, and in any case I had no money with which to gamble. It was, I found, one thing to sit down to a monte deck at a table surrounded with people you knew, where your credit was good, and another to stake your money on a painted wheel in a great hall where nobody cared whether you won or lost. Trying to make my little stake last as long as possible, I roomed in a cheap hotel, the old Watcher rooming house, and ate but one two-bit meal a day. I was constantly on the lookout for work of some kind, but had no luck until one day, as I was passing up Kearney Street, I saw a sign in one of the store windows calling for volunteers for the Sloop of War Jamestown. After reading the notice a couple of times, I decided to enlist. Did so, was sent to Mary Island Navy Yard, and from there boarded to Jamestown. It was on that vessel that I performed an action that I have not since regretted, however reprehensible it may seem in the light of present-day ethics. Smallpox broke out on board, and I, fearful of contracting the dread disease, planned to desert. This would probably not have been possible today, when the quarantine regulations are so strict, 
but in those days port authorities were seldom on the alert to prevent vessels with diseases anchoring with other shipping, especially in Mexico, in the waters of which country we were cruising. When we reached Mazablan, I went ashore in the ordinary course of my duties as wardroom steward to do some marketing and take the officer's laundry to be washed. Instead of bringing the marketing back to the ship, I sent it, together with a note telling where the laundry would be found, and saying goodbye forever to my shipmates. The note written and dispatched, I quietly vamoosed, or as I believe it is popularly termed in the Navy now, I went over the hill. My primary excuse for this action was, of course, the outbreak of smallpox, which at that time, and in fact until very recently, was as greatly dreaded as the bubonic plague is now, and probably more. Vaccination, whatever may be its value in the prevention of disease, had not been discovered in the sense that it is now understood, and was not known at all except in the centers of medical practice in the East. Smallpox then was a mysterious disease and certainly a plague. Whole populations had been wiped out by it. Doctors had announced there was practically no cure for it, and that's contraction and almost certain death, and I may thus be excused from my fear of the sickness. I venture to state, moreover, that if all the men aboard the Jamestown had had the same opportunity that I was given the dessert, they would have done so in the body. My second excuse, reader, if one is necessary, is that in the days of the Jamestown and her sister ships, Navy life was very different from the Navy life of today, when I understand generous paymasters are even giving the jackies ice cream with their meals. You may be entirely sure that we got nothing of the kind. Our food was bad, our quarters were worse, and the discipline was unbearably severe. End of chapter 3